Good morning, church. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to this morning's reading and the subject and center of the sermon. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. I ask you all to stand up and follow along in your Bibles as I read. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no, one, no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself so much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's slip down to verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. May God bless his word to us. Please be seated. Take a moment. Consider these words in preparation for the sermon. Obviously, I'm not Pastor Paul. I'm one of the elders here, and it is a great opportunity for me to come before you and talk to you from God's Word. The story of the widow's might is something that most of us have heard at some point in time. I think it's a story that we also look at and we think about it being about giving, about sacrificial giving. 
uh, oftentimes we'll hear it taught with passages in Malachi, and, and it'll be about stealing from God. And, and I think although that's in there, and I think it's certainly true, I think if we look at the broader passage, what we're going to see is that Jesus also had a different message that we could take from it, a message about worship. I'm reminded of a time when I was a young man, so this would have been many years ago, when I was witnessing to a friend of mine. And he posed a question to me which kind of took me off guard. He said, I couldn't love a God who demanded that I worship him. Kind of threw me a little off because it didn't really ever occur to me that if you knew God, that you wouldn't want to worship Him. I had to think about it. And I came to realize that absence of God's love and God revealing Himself to us, that that would be a position that you could take because you would think that worship is something that we could give or withhold from God. And that was the false premise. Worship, our ability to worship, is something that God gives to us. It's not something that we give to God. And worship is not confined just to what we do this morning as we gather together as a body and lift up our voices to the Lord. But worship is something that we do every day in every component of our life. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He brings the point that it is our whole life that is our testimony to God, that is what we give to God. And in today's lesson, in today's sermon, those are the points that I want to make. Number one, that worship is God's gift to the elect. That God enables us to worship him. That God empowers us to worship him. And God equips us to worship him. That it is all from God. And then we're going to finish by looking at the two examples that Jesus pointed out to the disciples on that day. Because I believe he showed them this lesson. He showed them in the commandments, this is what God requires. This is what man should give to God, and then this is what God, man should give to his fellow man. This is what God shows us. But then he shows them living examples of what that's supposed to look like. In verse 28, as Bill read, it said that one of the scribes came up and he said, which commandment is the most important? He was testing Jesus. He was trying to trip him up. It was a question where he thought there might not be a real definitive answer. But Jesus, as he so often did, responded from God's word. Jesus said, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, there's a rabbinical practice, and and we see it in teachings even today, that when you would say something, you would expect the hearer to understand the broader context. It would be as if I said four score and seven years ago. You would know that that was Abraham Lincoln. You would know that happened in Gettysburg. You would know that it happened in the Civil War. There were things that you would understand. Well, the scribe would have known when he heard those words that it was Moses speaking. That it was at Mount Sinai. That it was a giving of the law. In his mind, he would have heard the preamble which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And I think this is the first point of worship. There is only one true God. And that we lack the ability to know him, except that he chooses to make himself known to us. We are born in a state of sin, separated and apart from God. We lack the ability to know him. In fact, we don't seek him. Even when presented with undeniable proof of who God is, we would suppress that in our unrighteousness. That's who we are and that's what the human condition is. But God, for his own purpose and in accordance with his own goodwill, sovereignly chose to make himself known to us. Not because of any inherent goodness in us. Not because of anything we've done or anything that we will do. But it's a sovereign choice. And that's the foundation of worship. That we can worship the one true God because he has allowed us to know him. So we start with the fact of knowing who God is. But knowing who God is, isn't enough. Satan knows who God is. The demons know who God is. Pharaoh knew who God was. But none of them loved God. None of them worshipped him. None of them were in fellowship with him. And that brings us to our second point, which is God empowers us to worship him. Because the question has to be, how do we... Love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. If we start in a state where we are dead in sin. And the obvious answer is that we can't. Except that once again, God shows his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. By giving us his son, who lives a life of perfect obedience, and went to the cross in perfect obedience, by his propitiatory death, we're reconciled with God, and we have access to fellowship with God. But not only fellowship, but we're brought into the family of God. We are sons, heirs, and co-heirs in Christ. So much more than we could ever ask. 
It's more than we could ever deserve. And it is wholly accomplished completely by God. But if we have that, if we know who God is, if we have the ability to be in fellowship with him, then what do we do with that? Because those things don't mean that we will esteem God or value God or love God or worship God in the way that we should. Which brings us to our third point. That God equips us to worship him. God gives us a helper. God allows us to share him with others. The second part of the answer that Christ gave is, is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think people who don't know the Lord hear that and it's confusing. You might get that answer, well, what if you don't like yourself? Does that mean you don't have to like your neighbor? But I think that goes back to the same thing. It is an eye focus. It's a man-centered focus. We love ourselves not because of what we think about ourselves, but because of what God thinks about us. We love ourselves because God loves us. In Romans it says that God loved us from before the beginning of time. It's those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called. And those who he called he also justified. And those who he justified he glorified. You see, God loves us from before the beginning of time. And then he tells us he's going to be active with us in our entire life. And then he says that he's going to see us all the way to glory. That's the God that we serve. That he loved us so deeply that the ransom he was willing to pay for us was his only begotten son. And when we see that, that's how we love ourselves. Because then he gives us this gift of worship. And we know these things. We have the ability then to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's how we love our neighbor. We come along our brothers and sisters, alongside our brothers and sisters, And we help them as they work out their salvation in fear and trembling. And we help them to enjoy, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if they are outside the community of faith, then we shine the light of Christ into their life. The life we live is a light. We spread the gospel so that through the Holy Spirit, they may come to a point when they can glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think if we see those things, then we realize that all of worship comes from God and that we see the three persons, the triune Godhead in worship. The Father enables us. He gives us himself. The Son empowers us. And God gives us his son. 
And the Holy Spirit equips us to be the light to the world. Because Jesus asked the Father that he be with us. And I think that's the cycle of worship that we see here. God gives us himself. He gives us the ability to worship him. And when we use that gift to glorify and enjoy him forever, he gives us another gift. How many times when we've been pressed down and when we struggle, when we have those moments, we reach out to the Lord in worship and he lifts us up. He refreshes our spirit. I think this is the message that Jesus put before the disciples as he answered the scribes. But then like so many great teachers, what he did is he, then he gave them an example. So Jesus turns and he says, and in his teaching he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. It's kind of interesting if you actually just look at what he said and not take the context, but just break it down. Because then you'll see what the disciples see. And you'll see what the members of that synagogue would have seen. They would have seen men who seem to be fulfilling all the outward forms of worship. Who seem to be obedient to the commands of the Lord. Because this is what they would have seen. They would have seen scribes dressing appropriately to come into the house of the Lord. They would have seen men greeting fellow people in worship and sharing communion with them. They would have seen people coming to the house of the, God, of the Lord on, his, on, on the Sabbath. They would have seen people honoring God at the feast day as they're called to do. They would have seen men praying. That doesn't really sound like a list of sins. But see, God knows what man doesn't. He knows what's in our heart. And Jesus looked into their heart and knew that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because they did these things without any love for God. They were the focus. It was a man-centered worship. It's easy sometimes to take things, even God things, good things, and make them God things. It's easy to focus on a pastor or a ministry or so many other things. And what God is saying is, if it's not done to glorify God, if it's not done from the love of God then the form, the act, there's no obedience there. And I think when he says that they'll face the greater condemnation, that's what he's saying. You see, they knew who the one true God was. They had the commandments. They had greater light. And so their judgment will be greater than those who suppress God in their unrighteousness, but don't have the community of fellowship. But then Jesus sat down 
opposite the treasury and watch people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put large sums and a poor widow came in and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, there are a couple of things that I would like to point out about this. The first thing is, I don't believe that Jesus is making any comment on the rich people. There's never a judgment on them. There's never really a comparison about them. I don't think it's about them. He sat down opposite the treasury box, and these people were honoring God and putting money in, but Jesus wasn't waiting for them. I think when Jesus sat down, it was just like the woman at the well. He was waiting for the widow. And when she came and she gave, what the disciples would have seen, what the other people in the church might have seen, was something that was insignificant. They wouldn't have noticed it. He has to call them over and tell them what's actually happened. They might have known that she was poor. It's possible that her dress would have made that clear, but they couldn't know that that was everything she gave. Once again, God sees the heart. And I think in this, he was calling them to see something very particular and that they would have understood about giving at that time. The nation of Israel was still an agrarian culture, and they had a concept of giving which was called the first fruit, which meant that you would plant and you would sow and you would do all of this work, and the storehouses are empty, and the first crop comes in, and you harvest it. But you don't partake of that bounty. You take it, and you offer it to the Lord. Even though you know there is no guarantee that the rest of the crop is going to come in. It could be a drought. It could be a fire. It could be locusts. Anything could happen. But what you say is, I trust in the Lord to bless my endeavor. And I trust that he will give me the bounty. And I think... When they see this, that's what they're seeing. Because when you give the first fruits, that's what they're doing. They're giving everything. And that's what she's giving. But more important than that, I think, if you compare her to them, they're doing all these other things. He talks about all the forms, all these specific types of obedience that outwardly look like worship. And they receive a greater condemnation. But here, she does one act. She's poor. I think with poverty, there is a certain pressing down that occurs in your life. Everything has more value. She's a widow in a society where marriage, in large part, kind of defined who the woman was. We don't know whether she has children. There's no comment there, but... 
If she had children, we would have expected them to care for her. So two pennies shouldn't be all she had. In the section above, it says to beware the scribes for they devour the widow's house. So there's almost a thought that we could say perhaps her husband had cared for her and laid her money to the church and they had devoured her estate. I think we see a woman who's very pressed down. But she gets up on the day of the Lord. In faith, she goes to God's house. In obedience, she gives to the Lord. And I think that's kind of the lesson we see here, that somewhere between faith and obedience, God will always bless us. Now, the blessing she received isn't something that I think she was even aware of. Did she go to the house of God knowing that God would be there? Yes. Did she realize the Messiah and the living incarnate God was there to witness it? No. Are we ever told that Jesus comes up and says, thank you? That any of the disciples say, you know, the Messiah has told us about this. No. She received a blessing because of her light. Her example is a light, not only to the disciples, but 2,000 years later and in many churches ever since, she's received that blessing, but she probably never knew. Until one day, when she was raised up in glory, and I'm sure she heard the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I, th- I think in many ways the widow is a, a better example to us than a lot of the heroes that we think of in the Bible. Where God comes alongside them, he speaks to them. Where they're surrounded by armies, where they're going from one victory to another. Where they see these direct manifestations of God's favor. Because a lot of times in the Christian life, it seems like we're more like the widow. It seems like there are desires we have in our heart that God doesn't grant us. It seems like there's sometimes things that God withholds or God just doesn't seem to have the timing right. A lot of times we're fortunate and blessed that we go through these hard times and we're tested And we look back later and see that that season, that trial, that testing enabled us to receive a greater gift and to receive a greater blessing later. But sometimes we don't. And I think that's the message here. I think that's what Jesus is showing the disciples, that you have to concentrate on the giver And not the gift. Because three nights after this, they're going to be the widow. The bridegroom is going to be taken from them as he goes to the cross. And they're going to experience that type of bereavement. And they're going to have to find their strength in the same place as the widow. 
faith and obedience. Now, maybe the widow isn't the example we want. And if it's not, then the final and greatest example is, of course, the cross. Because Jesus is going to go to the garden. Jesus is going to ask that the cup be taken away. But in the end, he's going to say, I don't know everything. Just your will and not my will be done. The idea that we simply leave it in the hand of God, that he has greater plans for us and that he will accomplish his goals. We may not always get what we want, but God has plans for us. Plans to prosper us, plans to give us hope. So we must wait upon the Lord and trust that's our spiritual worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a fellowship. Thank you for the opportunity that you give us to lift up our voices in prayer to you. We know that you answer all prayers. We know that we are upheld in your hand from before our first breath until we are raised in glory to you. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and ask that you would be with us this day and always. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.